Not only has he been a pastor, he has been a missionary in some fascinating places, a church administrator and leader in some perhaps equally fascinating places. He's also an author of a book that I want you to know about. His name is Dr. Gary Wagner, and this is Our Conversation. Dr. Wagner, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much. It's nice to be able to come and visit with you, John. Now, your career in ministry stretches back and stretches forward. You're still very active. You recently authored, I think, a, an important and, and a challenging book in the most appropriate of ways. But there's a lot to talk about here. You've had some remarkable experiences over your time. Before we dive into that, let's go way back to the beginning. Tell me where you hail from and how things got started for you. I was uh, born in Garden City, Kansas, uh, southwest corner of Kansas, and it was uh, it was a great time. My parents were neither one uh, Adventist, neither one of them uh, claimed any uh, Christian lifestyle. Right, right. And but my grandmother was an Adventist, and. She made sure through our growing up years, there were seven of us children in the family, she made sure that uh, somebody from the church would come by and, and invite us on Sabbath mornings to come to Sabbath school. Mm. And that, that continued for years. And, and uh, Praise God for my grandmother. Oh, yeah. Well, your parents didn't object to that? They were okay with that? No, they didn't object. Uh, I think both of them really were interested in having us have some kind of Christian upraising. Yeah, yeah. But they came, they were raised in different backgrounds. And they had apparently agreed before they started having kids that they weren't going to push either one so that they wouldn't be uh, confusing us. Mm -hmm. I think it would have been perhaps better had they given us uh, at least some background, but, but God is good and he knows what he's doing. Let me ask you this. What was your family doing in southwest Kansas Anyway, how did, how did you wind up there? My grandparents, grandmother and grandfather, uh, grandma as we called her, came to uh, the States when she was 24 all by herself. Mm. Where from? Uh, she's from the Ukraine. Huh? She's German from the Ukraine. Sure. Her family had come out of Russia and uh, she got out in time to miss the uh, Russians going back into Ukraine. She came by herself and uh, settled in uh, Kansas, in Rush County, Kansas, where she was met by uh, Grandpa. And they got married, had a place there for a while, a farm, and then they moved to southwest Kansas to Garden City. Uh, and uh, he, he got a job. They started raising um, my father and his, his uh, siblings. What was life like in Kansas for them way back then? I mean, I, I cannot imagine it was, it was I, I don't want to paint it with a, with a, with a bad brush here, but it, it had to have been relatively primitive back in that time. Well, we didn't notice that. We didn't notice it being primitive because we had never been anywhere else yeah. to, to, to compare it to. I'm thinking way back to this, this 24-year-old Ukrainian princess who traveled to Kansas of all places. She didn't, she didn't stop in New York City and other places where the immigrants congregated, but she somehow found a way to the center of the country. She, her ship did stop in 
on Ellis Island. Sure. But she was a little sick with something, and so she couldn't get off the boat. Yeah. And so it went on to Canada, where she got off and then made her way back down to Rush County. Did she have contacts there? She must have known somebody there. We think that she must have known somebody, but we don't have any evidence of oh, that. okay, okay. Well, whatever, she, however it happened, it happened. And she and her new husband found Christianity, or they had a Christian background, or what was their situation? She was apparently a Seventh-day Adventist from the Ukraine. And uh, her husband, uh, Grandpa, didn't seem to have the, much of a background, although he... We just in the past year have found his uh, information of being baptized. Oh, how fascinating. Yeah. It didn't stick with many of their children, although there were a couple of them ha- that are still, that still maintained their, their relationship with God and with the church. And, and one of those is still living in mm. Oklahoma. Mm, mm, mm. But Grandma reached across a generation and got to you kids, and that had... Well, tell, tell me why that had an influence. It could have been just as easy for you to become some secular, secular-minded young man, but something lodged in you owing to your grandmother's influence, you know, to, to, to have the church reach out to you. Talk to me about that experience, being raised in a home that didn't profess faith, but you had church contact, and that stuck somehow. Why? I've thought about that a lot, trying to figure out just what it was, because I'd like to reduplicate that in, in the lives of other people. With the seven of us, my older sister and myself are the only ones who uh, still attend church regularly. Mm. I stopped periodically. There were times when, when people from the church would come by, and, and maybe for months and maybe even a year, I, I didn't go. Uh, there were other times when I walked myself to, to go to church yeah, yeah. because I wanted to go. And... Uh, but when I got into high school, things started getting busy for me. I, I, I wasn't too interested. Which is fascinating, because not many years later, you're a volunteer working in the killing fields in Cambodia. This is just a few years later. Not long after that, you're a minister of the gospel. So this this is relatively shortly after those... I could go this way, I could go that way years. Isn't it interesting how God works things? It really is, and and I've reviewed that many times. Uh, I I recognize, because of different things in my life, uh, that God has always been working in my life, and I believe He's working in everybody's life the same way. And if we look back into those past experiences, we can see the times when when He has definitely been making a claim on, on us, and and trying to bring us to a relationship with him. But we have to make those decisions. Yeah. It was uh, in high school, I got into, the, into debate. Uh, my first year of college as a freshman, uh, I debated, uh, and my colleague and I made it to the nationals that wow. year. And we were offered nice scholarships to a, a four-year college. That was from community college. To a four-year college, and, and I was considering that with a career in uh, in law or politics. And a friend of mine and I were getting ready uh, in the summer after my freshman year of college to to uh, 
run off to Boulder, Colorado and uh, just disappear and be uh, hippies. He was already pretty much a hippie and, and, and I was a wannabe. But I decided that I would go back to the church one last Sabbath morning. We scheduled our departure on a Sunday. I would go back to church one last Sabbath morning and without saying anything to anybody, just kind of make my goodbyes uh, in my own mind, in my own heart. I'll never see you again. Been good seeing you. But that Sabbath, there were four uh, student co-porters from Union College who were at the church, little church, and the pastor invited me to his house to have lunch with those students. And uh, my friend left without me on Sunday. That, that summer I ended up canvassing. I ended up at Union College in the fall. was there for a year and was chosen as a student missionary to Korea. And after my time there was just about finished, they asked me to go to Cambodia to be the director of the school there. I want to come back. Everybody heard what you said. It made an impact. But I don't think it made as, as big an, a bigger impact on anybody than me. You were done. I was done. You went back to the church to, in your own mind, just resolve this. This was goodbye. I'm leaving tomorrow to dive into the, to the Boulder, Colorado hippie scene. Quite the scene. And God arrested you there. Yes, he did. And stopped you there. That's a miraculous story. It is. It is miraculous. I'm continually amazed, as I said, by the way, God, God was through my whole lifetime reaching into my life and saying, no, I want, I want this from you. Yeah, let's think back. You were raised in, a, in a, what's essentially a secular family by Christian mm-hmm. parents who didn't want to push Christianity. But that was the, the, the compromise they'd worked out. Grandma was tenacious. And, and it's not like grandma escorted you to church. She arranged for someone from the church. Your God has really worked in your life. Yes, it has. Truly, truly amazing. Okay, so you went to Korea, and we're talking back around 1970 sometime. 72. Right yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Korea in 1972 had to be a fascinating place. Oh, it was. Now, I loved it. Tell me briefly about your time in Korea. What was that like? Uh, I was teaching at the English Language School, and, and I just loved the, 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 the culture, going out into the streets, going to the markets. Uh, I, even until now, when I go to different countries, I like to go to the local markets yeah, because, oh, yeah. because you can really get a handle on, on what the culture is like Absolutely. at the local markets. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I, I love doing that. And but what, uh, what was a kid from Kansas making of Korean food? Did, did oh, they, I loved it. You, you, you could handle kimchi and bibimbap. Oh, and, yes, yes. Yeah, is that so? Loved every bit of it. You know, you know there's a Korean restaurant about uh, half a mile from where we're sitting. Did yes, you know I know. I hope you've been there. I have been. Yeah, terrific place. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what a, what a rich culture, what great food. I'll always come back to the food. So the, the, the kid from Kansas went to Korea. You were at Union College at the time? Yes. Yeah, okay, so you went from community college to Union College, yes. a, a four-year Christian school run by the Seventh Adventist Church. The next year, you turned around and went to Cambodia to do what? They, there had been a, another English language school started in Cambodia about six months before that. Uh, but the director from who started the school had to get back to the States, and they needed somebody with some experience to, to direct it. They asked me if I would go, and, and 
I told them no. Uh, I, I didn't feel the Lord was leading me there. Uh, reality was I wanted to get back home to to family and to college and maybe even a girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But they came and asked me again. And I said, well, let me pray about it. And so I prayed about it, and, and, uh, and I told them no again. Oh, you did? Yes. And then they came back a third time, said, we really think that you're the person that we're supposed to be sending down for this. And I thought to myself, I, I, I think I've heard of this in the Bible somewhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. And so I, I prayed about it again and, and finally said yes and uh, traveled down from Korea to Cambodia on my own, of course. Uh, but that was, a, that was a strange trip because I recognized that that, that trip was symbolic to me of, of, uh, of a change in who I was. How so? Uh, going from being uh, basically an untrained teacher, although things went very well with teaching and Bible, Bible classes, and I even held my first evangelistic series in Korea. Fantastic. Learned a lot about how this school was run, uh, but I, I knew that it would be different in Cambodia because I would be in charge. The language school was the only work that our church had in the whole country uh. of Cambodia. When I arrived, there was one baptized member in the country. And there was a young couple who had arrived the week before from Singapore. They had just finished uh, college at uh, Southeast Asia Union College and had just gotten married and immediately came to Cambodia. And they were their job was to study the language and they were supposed to be there for five years. Mm. Study the language and begin uh, working with the people and... Uh, so I met them when I arrived. Uh, and it was strange being in a place where we didn't have a... Uh, we didn't have a mechanism for the rest of the church. The language school was it. So uh, I recognized the need to to do what had to be done. And of course I prayed a lot more. Yeah. At that time. That was God's leading. Yes, it was. We had seven-week uh, terms for the language school, and every week, every term, we had a series of evangelistic meetings. Mm. Initially, we could do that in the evenings after the classes were over. But uh, very shortly, because of the military crisis with uh, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, the Cambodian communists, they put on a curfew at night, at sunset. So we couldn't do that anymore. So I made the decision that we would have those meetings during the afternoon, during the siesta time, the rest time. And everybody told me that this is ridiculous. Nobody's going to come. But I remember standing there in, in, in our little auditorium on the second floor of the school, preaching to the people, and, and, uh, and in walked, division officers from Singapore. High-end church administrators. Yes, and uh, they were they were as amazed to see us doing evangelism in the middle of the afternoon as, as I was to see them. To see them walk in. 
Yes. How, how successful, and you can measure success in a number of ways, were those evangelistic efforts in what was a very challenging culture with no church infrastructure? Like I said, we had one baptized member when I arrived there. Yeah. Fourteen months later, when I left, we had 23. God had given us amazing, amazing success in, in reaching into the souls and hearts of people. That's fantastic. When you went there, did you realize you were going there as an evangelist? Did you have that in mind? Were you expecting that? I, I didn't. That's something I hadn't thought through yet. But, uh, but it became obvious to me very quickly. What I did was simply repeat the model that I had learned sure. in Korea. Yeah. And, and if it was going to be done, nobody else knew that that was what could be done than I did because I had seen it done once before. Interestingly enough, that same model was followed later by one of the young men who was baptized there after Pol Pot took over the country and was in control of it for five years. And finally people began moving into, into the refugee camps in Thailand. One young man who was a friend of mine who had become baptized and who had become my interpreter for the language school and, and for distributions, taking relief supplies out to refugees uh, all over the country. Uh, he led a group of 20 people across, across the killing fields, across Cambodia, to Thailand. And he came into uh, to Thailand, into one of the villages on the border, and he asked, uh, Adra was there working. Uh, it was Saws at the time, pre-Adra. And uh, he asked them if they knew me. Well, I was the director of, of, of ADRA there at the time. Mm-hmm. And so we reconnected. I asked him to, uh, I went to see him, told him that we couldn't do anything for him in this place. But I asked him to take his group of 20 people back into Cambodia, go upstream about 15 miles, and come back out at another village where my predecessor and, and some other people had built a large bamboo and thatch church. And we had no members there and no one to lead it. And I asked him, I didn't have the authority to use this term, but I asked him, would you go there and be our pastor there? Mm. And he went and used the same model. And uh, he started teaching English, started teaching Bible, started having evangelistic meetings. And, and they baptized hundreds. They had people from their, from their camp that were going back into Cambodia during Pol Pot's reign to teach the people in the villages about Jesus. It's a, it's a stunning story. Just a few years earlier, you went to church for the last time. A few years later, you are growing a church work in what was basically an unended country and acting assuming the role of the leader of that work. It's phenomenal. In just a moment, I want to ask you about your time in the killing fields. Here's Dr. Gary Wagner. I'm John Bradshaw. Don't go away. We'll have more of our conversation in just a moment.
What does the Bible say about astrology? Why do bad things happen to good people? What color is Jesus? If you have a question, we'd love to find an answer for you from the Bible. Line up online from It Is Written TV. It was like a ticking time bomb just waiting to explode. And when it did, a city was plunged into chaos. A town was completely destroyed. More than 300 people were left dead and thousands left homeless. It remains one of the nation's least known atrocities. Yet it was one of the most destructive race riots in United States history. Join It Is Written on location in Tulsa, Oklahoma for Black Wall Street as we look at the problem of evil. We'll investigate the destruction of a community and ask some searching questions. How can this happen? And who would do such a thing? How do good people commit truly wicked acts? Black Wall Street will take you there, to the very streets where evil reared its ugly head in a way not often seen. Don't miss Black Wall Street on It Is Written TV. Planning for your financial future is a vital aspect of Christian stewardship. For this reason, It Is Written is pleased to offer free planned giving and estate services. For information on how we can help you, please call 800-992-2219. Call today or visit our website, hislegacy.com. Call 800-992-2219. Thanks for joining us for Conversations. My guest is Dr. Gary Wagner, a man who's had some remarkable experiences, and we are yet to talk about the book that he's written, and it's a book I want you to know about. Gary, a moment ago, a a, a kid who was giving up on God found himself in a situation where he was leading and organizing a work in a culture completely foreign to him where Christianity to all intents and purposes, didn't exist. Yes. Do you, do you look back on that and say, I was 22 years old, I was wet behind the ears, didn't know what I was doing, what in the world? Or, or how do you look back at this time when it, a young, inexperienced man was thrust into a, an impossible situation, and yet you just said hundreds and hundreds of baptisms grew out of your work? What, what do you make of that? A, a, a kid, I say respectfully, being dropped into that situation. The first thing is, it was all by the grace of God. Sure. It, it, it could not have happened any other way. But the second thing is, I believe that a great many of our young people, young adults, are being led by the same God. Sure. And if they had appropriate opportunities, could be led to accomplish the same thing. Mm. That's one of the reasons I enjoy working with uh, students on uh, public college campuses because it's a, it's a chance to, to, to lead them a, a little bit a little bit further maybe maybe open up some some areas of their mind and possibilities that they haven't considered yeah there was there was a great deal more for you ahead author church administrator in post-communist Africa uh, you picked up a PhD along the way 
before we get to that, tell me about your time in the killing fields. You talked about Cambodia. We, we, we talk about the killing fields. Why are they referred to as the killing fields? A basic question, explain for me. They're called the killing fields because uh, Lon Nall and his military forces, uh, when, they, when they took over the country, they came into the capital city of uh, Phnom Penh and they drove everybody out into the countryside. Uh, they went into hospitals and and said, okay, everybody out. If you were a patient at that hospital, if you could get up out of your bed and go, you were okay. If you could get somebody to push your bed, you were okay. If you couldn't, they, they killed you on the spot. Everybody was forced out into the countryside. I- explain the thinking behind it. Why? Hospitals and everything, everything else in the then modern world was considered to be uh, elite. In fact, at the language school, we knew that that we had uh, spies at the school and at our worship services. We had been told that, that, that they were almost certainly there so that they could make a list of who was there with us uh, and that when the Khmer Rouge would come in, those lists would become would become uh, killing lists. Yeah. So on, on one of our evacuations, uh, I made sure that, that I burned every piece of paper that had a name on it bef- individually, not in a stack, because they weren't burning well enough in a stack, and it would leave some names. So I, I, I burned every piece of paper before I left the country. Yeah, this opens up a, a, a whole new, well, takes us a little bit deeper. So um, you were one of the elite. You're a teacher. Yes. Pol Pot and, was on a crusade to wipe out anybody who was elite. And, and anybody who knew me or had any contact with me, uh, anybody who, who was educated, anybody who wore glasses, yeah. had dental work, anybody who spoke foreign language, who, who, who was a member of a, of a, of a foreigner's church, uh, who had a high school or above education, they were they were set to be executed. And, and tell me what Pol Pot was trying to accomplish by exterminating the 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 elite. What 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 was he hoping to end up with? Pol Pot is is described uh, these days as having uh, performed the most the most pure experiment in communism that has ever been done. This shows you where communism is, is moving us oh, yes. in order to be successful. Oh, yes. In that uh, you, you destroy every person who has education or inclination to, to develop any uprising against your system. Yeah. And so that, that takes care of everybody who has any of those things that, that I mentioned. Other dalliances with communism, socialism take another approach. They simply use the academics to prop up and support and, and, and propagate the system. So it was a fascinating approach that he took. Others have been, even today you'll hear, well, they just didn't do it right. Mm. So those who are planning on doing it right are the ones who will be willing to take it further. How many did Pol Pot kill? When I was there, the population of the country was about four, four and a half million. And by the time I came back, uh, 
uh, five years, six years later, uh, to the camps in Thailand, there were less than half of that left. Some of those had fled? Some had fled. Uh, some had gotten to other countries before the before they they saw the the handwriting on the wall uh, but most of them had been killed uh, some some by military actions uh, a lot of them by sending them out into the into the rice fields to work uh, all day uh, with with nothing to eat the rice was all being shipped to China and they weren't allowed to eat any of it because China had supported the war effort for those years with with Pol Pot, and they wanted their money back. We've all seen those pictures of mountains of skulls and rice paddies and yes. bones and so on. What did you see? Uh, At one point, one of the times that that we were supposed to have evacuated, and we sent some of our people out, but some some of us stayed. Uh, and by the way, you know two of the other people who who were there at the time. Uh, I'll just come back to this uh, young Chinese couple, uh, Gantiu and Ivy. Ng, he's now called G T N. Uh, but but he he and his wife were there too. Uh, but during the day, the, the Khmer Rouge had promised it was at the Cambodian New Year. They had promised that they would send a thousand rockets into the city, and they were of course just taking those over from from the Cambodian military. And I was in the in the early afternoon during rest time. I. I wasn't resting. I never. <laughs> it wasn't my rest time. Right. Uh, I started hearing the explosions, and I ran up to the top of the building and and saw the explosions peppering all across the city, as if the artillery that they had taken over they were just shooting it and moving it, shooting it and moving it. Finally, in one place, it wasn't too far from us. I saw huge plumes of uh, dark smoke, so I went and 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 rushed to that place. Uh, and uh, when I got there, uh, I, I don't want to describe the things that were there. Um, and and as I was walking, it was a it was a village that was just getting I mean a market that was just getting ready to open back up. Um, but there began to be other explosions as well, and so it was it was a, a harrowing time, as, as I watched the smoke that was rising up, I, my mind, my eyes followed the smoke up into the sky, and I could see the, the sun as a, as a black ball, and, uh, and I, was, I was struck by that. I'd never seen a black sun before, and that evening when I went back to the language school and went back to the top of the building uh, just to think and pray about what had happened during that day. Uh, I, I looked up into the sky again and it was a it was a full moon and it was blood red. And and I, I remember the 
the, the prophecies that spoke of the sun being black and the moon being red and and, and I considered that this was a, another personal message to me. God was telling me uh, the end is coming and you have a work to do. What is it like 22-year-old kid, you're far from home. Your name is on a list. Yes. When you went into Cambodia, did you know you were walking into the lion's den or you'd had no idea? Yes, uh, I knew. Okay. With the other student missionaries in Korea, we, we actually developed a plan so that I could communicate with them and using certain codes as to what was going on and... and uh, we never used it because there wasn't any way, way for me to communicate with them. Your parents were not practicing Christians. Right. Their son becomes a Christian, is baptized, goes to a Christian school, and turns around and goes to the killing fields. I mean, I can't imagine what your letters home were like. Were your parents worried sick, or did they not really understand what was going on in Cambodia at the time? Of course I didn't tell them everything and and they knew I wasn't telling them everything right uh, and my son has since served uh, in Iraq and, and Afghanistan and mm. and he was communicating with us and, and we would be asking him okay what what is it that you're not telling sure, us sure 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 yeah how about that that's circle turned yeah, right there yeah there was uh, there was one time in particular when you see part of part of what we did at the language school that, and that we didn't I didn't know about this when I went there but uh, the the union uh, had decided to start a refugee relief program there and so w- we were in charge of that and uh, I on a monthly basis uh, worked with the uh, of course, continually working with the U.S. Embassy, but also with the Cambodian uh, government leaders who were responsible for w- helping the refugees. And one, we would take these clothes and other items out into villages where they had just, the people had just fled to these villages from other villages, sometime even just the night before, uh, running away from the, from the Khmer Rouge. And the military was always with us, in fact, at one point, I have a picture of, uh, of the colonel, uh, Colonel Pak Varro is his name. I, I always forget names, but, but I remember his name for uh-huh. some reason. And his assistant, and they, they rolled out a big map and said, okay, here we are. Here's where the Khmer Rouge are. And very, very close, very close. But on, on one trip, we were flying by a military helicopter, uh, D. Belong, who was the uh, government's uh, leader for the refugee relief uh, worked with all of the different agencies, and there were only three or four of us agencies that were there at the time. He he took me by helicopter to the place where we would have a distribution, but on the way he came, he was sitting in the co-pilot seat, and on the way he came back into the back of the chopper. You know these these Hueys with the two machine guns on mm-hmm. either side of the open doors, and he said to me, "He just got a call." Uh, and there was a village between where we were and where we were going. 
and and the village was surrounded by Khmer Rouge, and they were all going to die. And he said to me, would you be willing for us to stop there so that you can give them some encouragement? When you say they were all going to die? Yes. You mean what? Well... The Khmer Rouge had marked that village that surrounded it. They are going to wipe it out. They were going to wipe it out, and, and he said, we don't have any troops around to come and help them. How many people in this village? I don't really know. Uh, I saw maybe 50. You went to that village? Well, what do you, what do you say? Uh, I, I thought, certainly I'm not the person to be doing this. But then I said, if God wants this done, yeah, how do he'll, he'll do it. So, so I, I agreed to it. And, and as we got over the, over the area, we could see from above that that they, they had a bulldozer in there and they scraped dirt from the whole village and, and made a, a, a pile around, around the village. So at least when people came across, they would, they would be able to uh, see them coming. And so we, we were corkscrewing down into that village in the helicopter. And, and as we got down close enough, we saw, saw people running out of some of the houses and, and each of them were carrying a small bag, and they were running with great anticipation. And, and, and as they got like from here to, to that blue chair over there, I could see their faces, and they could see me. Our eyes met, and, and I knew they were looking to us for salvation. But the, the pilot recognized that some of them were just going to try to jump on the chopper to get out. And so he took back off. And as I was flying back out, watching those faces, looking for a savior, and, and being able to do nothing, it has, uh, it has affected me all my life. That would stay with you. It would stay with anybody. We'll be right back with more. This is Conversations. Have you ever wondered if you're good enough to be saved? It's a common question that has discouraged many people, but it doesn't have to discourage you. Taking a Stand is a powerful five-part series presented by Pastor John Bradshaw that will help you discover the assurance of salvation. Call 1-888-664-5573 to order the Taking a Stand DVD or download it from our web store at www.itiswritten.shop. Jesus offers salvation as a free gift to everyone, including you. It's one of the great stories of the Bible, a shepherd boy against a giant. It's a story that speaks to your story. Human beings weakened by years of sin up against an enemy with years of experience in sin. I'm John Bradshaw. Join me on location in Israel for David and Goliath. We'll go to the Valley of Elah where the conflict between Judah and the Philistines took place. We'll visit the stream where David selected five stones and see the hillsides on which Israel and the Philistines camped. The Bible comes alive in David and Goliath. Faith in the face of darkness, faith in the midst of faithlessness and failure, and reliance upon God when all other hope is gone. David and Goliath, filmed on location in Israel. Hope in the midst of trials, the power of a mighty God. Deliverance when deliverance is needed. Don't miss David and Goliath. 
brought to you by It Is Written TV. Hi, I'm John Bradshaw from It Is Written. The It Is Written Bible studies have been used around the world by people who want to understand the Bible better. They're short, they're easy to use, and they're life-changing. And in them, you'll find the hope and the peace that you've been searching for. Sign up for your Bible guides today at no cost. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to Conversations. My guest is Dr. Gary Wagner. There you were in a helicopter backing out of a village that you thought you were going to offer hope to. Let me ask you this, because I I did not know how that story was going to end. I wanted to ask you, what do you say when you go into a village of whether it's 50, 100, 200 people and you are there to offer them what may be their last word of hope because the Khmer Rouge is going to wipe them out. You never got to find out what you'd have said. What would you have said? At 22 years of age, what would you have said? That's a good question. I think the biggest answer is you depend on God to give you the words that need to be said. I had put together a a very short few words saying, you're in a difficult situation, and God sees you, and he knows who you are, and he knows what's happening to you, and I want you to know he loves you. No matter what happens in this situation, I want you to to know that, that there is a God in heaven who loves you and is watching out for you and still has a plan for you for eternity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It sounds to me that in that year or two you spent in Korea and then especially in Cambodia, you must have grown up a lot. Did it feel that way to you? Did you recognize that or maybe not? Yes, I was definitely a different person when I came back to Union College. Yeah. And, uh, but, but still in some ways, maybe gullible. Sure, you're still a kid. I mean, you know, a young man. So there's still, still some learning to do. How would you, why gullible? Uh, when, when we were being evacuated the first time from Phnom Penh, from the language school, uh, somebody from the division office came in the night before we flew out and interviewed me for an article he said he wanted to do. And that article ended up coming out in the Insight magazine on December 25 of that year. This huh? was in September. Yeah. And uh, it told about you know what we were doing there and, and uh, uh, what I was going to be doing when I got back to the States, where I'd go back to college and... and uh, well, this, the, the, the magazine was distributed to college and academy dormitories all over the country right at Christmas time. And, uh, but there aren't any students on those campuses at that time. Right. But there was a student on one of the campuses. What was her name? Her name was Dina. Uh-huh. And uh, she read the article. 
And she said, when after she read the article, she said, that's the man I'm going to marry. Just like that? Just like that. Because she had an interest uh, in missions work. And uh, she wanted to do more than just be. Uh, so she had a strong interest. And the things that were said in that article were, were very interesting to her. Mm-hmm. She had decided where she was going to college, but it wasn't where I was going to go to college. And the uh, recruiter for that college just happened to contact her and ask her to come there. Oh, very nice. She said, well, no, I can't because uh, you don't have the major that I want. And so after he got back to the college, he called her back and said, what if we start that major, which was journalism? And uh, she said, well, okay. So they started the major, and she went Union College. She not, got, the, not the first time God has done something spectacular oh, for no, you. Oh, no, no. <laughs> like I say, he's been working in my life all through. Oh, yeah. And, and I still believe that he's doing the same kinds of things for other people. And, and so often we don't recognize what he's doing. Mm-hmm. So she got there uh, before I did because she got a job at the school, uh, working for the school paper. She got there before registration, so she'd get into it. And she she found me in the registration line and interviewed me for an article for the school paper because I was going to be involved in a lot of things on the campus. And uh, she interviewed me a lot of times that year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very good. And uh, it took me a while. To, to catch on. It did? <laughs> yeah. Oh, she must have been, what do I have to do? <laughs> well, she did, she did invite me to, to Sadie Hawkins' event. And uh, she said she was trying to find me to ask me in person and never could. And so she put a note in my dormitory mailbox. And, and I got in and said, no, if you want to ask me, you have to ask me in person. So I... I took the note and I answered it in Korean script and put it back in her mailbox. So she smart still had Alec. to come to a me. A smart Alec. Huh? <laughs> Look at that. So she came to you to say, what in the world did you write? <laughs> exactly. Fantastic. And, uh, and it still took a long time for me to figure out what was going on. But we've been married for 45 years. Fantastic. So. Well, you got it figured out then. Thank God you I did. I finally did. Yeah. Wonderful. Two questions. I need to back up and then back forward. Um, Thailand, you mentioned Thailand. You spent some time in the refugee camps there. That became part of your work. Yes. After I finished uh, my master's degree, I was called back to be the ADRA, SAWS director, for the work in the refugee camps. And uh, we had work in in, uh, quite a a few different camps and villages along the border. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By, By this time, you weren't alone. Right. Yeah. Uh, I was married, and we had uh, our our oldest son was about six months old mm. when we went to Thailand. What was that work like? Challenging, rewarding, frustrating? How did you find it? Uh, very challenging. Uh, again, into, into areas that uh, I wasn't fully trained for, but I knew God would train me. And I knew I also that I had an, an interest in, in helping those people. Uh, so, I also had 
people who had been there before working with the previous director. And uh, quite a number of those were Australians who I loved, who did tremendous work, couldn't, couldn't keep them down. Just, they were just always there and always working. And so we would, we would provide, in some places, uh, meals for mothers and children, uh, some places uh, water. Uh, there were camps uh, where we had the medical work for the camp that we were responsible for, to the place where we had uh, even a surgical unit. And, and all of these things were staffed by volunteers. During my time there, we've had probably 250 volunteers from the States and from Australia and other places who would come for short terms to work in these, uh, in these settings. Uh, one of them was a village, a Soksan, uh, right along the border, except actually just inside Cambodia. To get to it, we had to get each time we went, we had to get uh, permission from the UN and from the Thai military and, and from the, uh, the, the, the Cambodian military to, to go into the camp. But we had some people who, were, who just lived there to do the work. And there were three small villages that we called Soksan 1, 2, and 3, and each one of them we had a bush hospital. Uh, and my first trip in... Uh, I, I got some mosquito bites in the evening. And uh, two weeks later, I came down with uh, malaria and dengue fever Ooh. And, uh, and almost died in the Bangkok hospital to the place where uh, the doctors... I, I'd been there for a week. They couldn't get a positive results from the, from the, uh, the tests and didn't want to treat for something they didn't know. Well, my, my own medical staff knew what it was and uh, threatened to come into the hospital and treat me, but, yeah. but they didn't. But the doctor told my wife that uh, I only had hours to live. And the next time she came into my room, uh, she saw me in the bed with the, my head covered with the sheets. Oh, what a sight for her. Yeah. She thought that was that. Uh, what had actually happened is they had decided to go ahead and start the treatment, and uh, and my fever broke, and I got cold, and I must have put the sheets yeah. up over my head. After all she went through, yes, she thought you'd taken her to Thailand just to die on her. Well, you know that was that was one of the things that I actually prayed about that day. Uh, and this is another thing that changes your life when you say, God, I didn't know that I came to Thailand to die. Mm. But if this is what you want, if you can be glorified. Yeah, that's the prayer. Then I accept it. Yeah. And uh, when, when you've made that kind of an, uh, a connection with, with God, the rest of your life is not the same. We went forward when I thought we were going back. Now let's go back. You come back from the Thai border. You come back from the killing from Cambodia. You got a year or two left of college. 
I mean, so over lunch, your friends are saying, how is Cambodia? How, how does that change you? How do you relate to, I'm going to class every day with some kid who last week was running a combine on his dad's farm and doesn't have a clue. I, I, I've, 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 this has been life and death for me. And now I'm back in school. That's a whale of a transition. Yes, from from being in charge of the work of the church for a country. Yeah. To going back to the dormitory and having to be in at ten o'clock at night. <laughs> it was it was an interesting transition. Oh yeah. Uh, I I tried not to chomp at that bit too much, because I respected the need to have people maintaining the the rules. Oh sure. But uh, it, it it was a strange thing. We don't have much time left, and uh, we had a book to talk about that we're not really going to talk about. We'll talk about it next time because we we, we have to wait on creation ta- Operation Time Box Creation's Rescue Mission. We're going to wait on that because there's a couple of other things I want to ask you about. Um, so let me ask you about them. You got a PhD. Doctor of Ministry. Yep. Why? Uh, that's not an accusatory question. What What made you feel like I want to I want to press forward and get my demon? I recognize that because of the person I am, if I'm not always moving forward, I'm 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 moving back. Yeah. yeah. And and I wanted to learn more. To be real honest, I never took school very seriously. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I can relate to that. <laughs> until I was. Until I was working on on my master's program, I I hardly ever studied for anything, and uh, finally studied some. But even then, it took me twenty years to get that doctorate. Yeah. Yes, I, I was I was put out of the program several times by the university, and 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 by God's grace, able to get back in for it. Well, okay, we'll 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 give it a try, but. See, that's like repentance. When you repent, you know, God, he, <laughs> yes, 70 times 7, yes, he, he told us. And, yes. Yeah. So uh, I, I just felt that to help be considered more seriously by other people in the things that, that were being shared, having that doctor behind the name is helpful. Sure. Uh, and And then I find that uh, I rarely use it because I've seen too many people use them to to beat other people. With uh, you can't talk to me. I've I've got these letters behind my name. Yeah. Well, you've got the right approach. You it, it's 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 grown you and and bettered you academically and in other ways in leadership and so forth. So that's what matters. That you have it and and kind of it has you now. So we ought to talk about uh, your time as a church leader in post-communist Africa, but we're not going to do that either. We'll save that for next time because we want to give that time to the, the, the time that it needs. We've got two minutes. So let me ask you this question. Uh, tell me who Jesus is to you. You know him very well. He knows you very well. And speak to me about the gospel. You've got two minutes. It's not long. Jesus is, a, is an amazing friend. The one who, who created me, 
and the one who has been leading my life, even even during the difficult times, and there have been plenty of difficult times, and he has always brought me through. I know that I can put my faith and trust in him, and and I want I want my life to mean something for him mm. and for his kingdom. The, the the gospel is is full of amazing things that we don't even know yet. Jesus talked about the 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 mysteries that have been since the foundations, which means mysteries even of creation that have that have been waiting out there for somebody to stumble across them and and so I I think I've I found some of those yes, and, yeah. and put into this book but there's there's never there's never a, an opportunity to uh to be bored when you're when you're treasure hunting when you're searching for mysteries and because if periodically God will just give you one of those mir- mysteries and 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 I found that I have to write it down when he gives it to me. Otherwise, I'll forget it and you say, like I know that there was something there. Where, where did that treasure map lead me to? But uh, it's an amazing thing to, to, ha- to be able to say, even though, even though I'm far from him, I know that he's doing a work in me that he'll finish because he's promised that he will. That's right. And I just need to let him do that. Dr. Gary Wagner, I wish we talked a little bit more about Operation Timebox, Creation's Rescue Mission, but what I'm really glad about is we can talk again. This has been wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to come on. I, I'm just pleased to be able to tell what God will do for any of us. Amen, and he will. Thank you for having joined us. I hope you've been encouraged and inspired and blessed. He is Dr. Gary Wagner. I'm John Bradshaw. This has been our conversation.